namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sangam Namasami This morning we talked about ten armies of Mara. These are ways of speaking about mental processes. Another way of talking about these defilements are the five hindrances, or the three roots, greed, hatred, and delusion. There's ignorance, delusion, and craving. And they work together to obstruct us from being naturally joyful and happy here in this realm. The truth of the matter is that this realm is a mixture of suffering and happiness for everyone, regardless of how much we try to manipulate, control, and organize our lives and everything that we experience. Eventually, the suffering breaks through loud and clear. And that is actually For us as spiritual seekers, that's something important. That's something that we can learn from. Suffering is our teacher. Living in a monastery, we rely for our food on the gifts of others. The other day, somebody sent us a cardboard box, quite a large box. We thought it was food. And sure enough, when we opened up this box, we found things to eat. But the box was full of plastic wrapping. And inside the plastic wrapping was a basket. And inside the basket were many kinds of sweets, each one in its own very, very fancy box. So all this packaging took up most of the space. And what was actually offered were these one portion of chocolate and one portion of candy and a few goodies. But each one of them had so much very exotic packaging around it. This is just like the delusion of the mind. It wraps everything up in many forms of dress and disguise. And we think that this is a big feast. But in effect, the way it's presented through the defilements, and the way we are duped into believing that it is something really worth making a big effort for, is false. It's just to fool us. And this is what the world does now. It packages things up so beautifully so amazingly, it's hard for us to resist. 
Now, the kind person that sent this, of course, would not have known from pressing the buttons on her computer what she was actually purchasing. But the businesses that contrive these formats and sell them to us are extremely clever in making their profits at our expense. We received the good intention and then we reflected on the state of the world. It's an, an economy of greed and it isn't cheap. It's expensive. As monastics, we live in an economy of gifts and of giving and it takes a lot of heart and a lot of effort to live like that. But it is very worthwhile and worthy of a spiritual intention and endeavor that is of huge proportion. But the results and the benefits are measureless. They're incomparable to the packaging that the world has to offer. There's another example of what the mind is so easily duped by, and that is what it produces in its own interior websites, contrived out of delusion. One time, Lumpo Cha, Ajahn Cha, a very renowned teacher in the Theravadan tradition of Thailand, he was a great forest master, one of the greatest of our contemporary time. At one time, a monk that he was training came to him eagerly and said, Lung Po, I have become a stream enter. A stream enter, for those of you that don't know, is somebody who has attained the first stage of enlightenment. Do you know what Ajahn Chah said to him? He said, well, that's better than becoming a dog. <laughs> and in Thailand, to be compared to or called a dog is a real insult. So this monk got really angry and went off in a huff. And Ajahn Chah said, the stream enterer is angry. <laughs> so much we believe our mind. It's very convincing. We have an experience in practice. It's unusual. It's very delightful. We feel bliss. We feel very happy. And it's easy to develop with that the conceit that, well, what else could this be but enlightenment or something nearby? And so one goes running to the teacher to proclaim. But Ajahn Chah was so wise, he could suss it out. We have to be wise like that. We need to suss out the, the, the seats of our deluded thinking. And we have to be very careful neither to overrate ourselves and, on the other hand, not to disparage ourselves. We must try very diligently to continue to bear witness to our experience so that the uncertainty 
of what is coming up is uncertain. We don't really know. We may have experienced phenomena that we don't recognize. And so it's really important for us, just as when other people come to us and say, oh, you're so great, or you're so incompetent. Whatever people might say to us, we should also listen to that with a mind of circumspection. Not sure. Uncertain. Don't really know. Because those are opinions. Whether they come from people outside of us or they come from the untrained mind, the committee of voices in there that would like to believe things that are unbelievable. And they are produced from our thinking mind thought after thought after thought, just like the water that comes out of Chapman Mill Pond. It just keeps coming. But just because it's coming, that doesn't mean that we're going to drink it. We don't know the source. We don't know the quality. We don't know whether it's potable. And the same way, whatever the mind keeps regurgitating or gurgitating or producing, fabricating. And it, it's endless. We need not believe it. We should be circumspect. We should just know these things as the sakibuto. That means the internal witness. We witness what is arising. We witness its beginning, its middle and its ending, just like breath after breath. The breaths keep coming. All kinds of Stories may come on the heels of the breath. Dreams, fictions, fantasies, or events that we've experienced in the past or that we wish we might experience or dread experiencing in the future. Our duty is to bear witness, to be a true witness to that with the knowing mind. And the knowing mind is the mind that is unburdened of its conditioning. Where does such a mind arise? It arises in its utmost purity if we are giving power to the five faculties. Faith, based on what we experience in the present moment, and our trust of this practice. An energy that is born from also knowing the importance of this work and dedicating ourselves to it wholeheartedly. Mindfulness that is alert, diligent, unwavering, attentive, and wisely informed, purified as much as we can based on our commitment to virtue. A focus of the mind which is knowing the present experience exactly as it is with full attention, concentrated energy of mind, stilling the mind's movements, stilling the activities of mind. So we're just holding one object at a time in focus, like a camera. You focus on one object at a time. Otherwise, it's fuzzy. It's out of focus. 
So the concentrated mind is very focused, but it isn't a narrow view. It's panoramic. It has the ability to observe the object from a wide perspective. This is insight, knowing what we're seeing and understanding it in its context, exactly as it's appearing within our own hearts. So we know the contraction of it, the density of it, the expansion of it, the broadness of it. We know its qualities inside and out. We're investigating that kind of devotion. And from all of these factors comes an ability to really know a wisdom that can really see through things, phenomena, experience, sounds, sights, smells, tastes, touch sensations, thoughts, memories, plans, opinions, judgments. All of that. We can know them as impermanent, as unsatisfactory, they're, they're dukkha from beginning to end, because they are fleeting. We cannot own any of it. And they don't belong to us. They're empty. They're actually completely devoid of existence. They're just a blink in the eye. This is what the internal witness can truly know. During the time of the Buddha, the Buddha, through his conduct, simple incidents, episodes that we read about in the scriptures, we learn so much about his wisdom and his ability to make wise choices with a whole range of human beings that he came into contact with. Very often, somebody would come to him and report that so-and-so has behaved in this way, and so-and-so has, has done something terrible. Now, the Buddha would always call that person that was named. He would call them and ask them to come. Go and fetch that monk. So the monk would come in front of the Buddha, and the Buddha would ask him. He would say, a report has been heard regarding your conduct that you have done such and such. Is it true? Did you do this? He didn't just believe what he was told. He would always check with the source, with the person involved, to make sure before he passed any kind of judgment or made any decision regarding how to deal with the conduct of this monk. I had this experience in the monastery, and I notice how quick the mind can become excited or heated if somebody comes to me and says, you're incompetent, or you don't know how to teach. And how quick one can react to that. How easy it is for us to become insulted, inflamed, if somebody is critical of us, even if it's true. The mind will deny it. We won't want to hear that. But wouldn't it be worthwhile for us to ponder the words that people bring us? 
rather than believing that person, ponder them and check, is it true? And so it is with opinions we have about ourselves. We shouldn't believe our minds. How many times do we speak to ourselves in ways that are disparaging, that are deprecating, that are insulting? You good for nothing, no good, you foolish, there you go again. It's pretty common. We insult ourselves again and again. We don't give ourselves credit. Who are all these conversations happening to in the first place? If we investigate the sounds that the ears are hearing, whether it's from somebody outside of ourselves who's just indulging in gossip or aversive speech, and we're buying it because we're so vulnerable and we so believe the packaging, whether it comes in the form of a sound or in the form of paper wrapping up a box, tiny pieces of chocolate in a giant box. These are little sounds, uh, critical voices in a world that is full of beauty and goodness. And we focus on the imperfections. We focus on what's wrong. We get stuck on the problems and we can't free ourselves from them. And this is because the tendency when there's still an ignorant mind, the tendency is to come from delusion, believe in delusion, and act from delusion. So we're really in danger. We're in a prison, the prison of our own making, and it's as if we lock ourselves into that by believing these external voices and internal voices. And then we get upset, or depressed, or sad, resentful, angry. (coughs) Family members don't speak to each other. I remember I had a friend who was quite elderly. She was in her 80s. And she said, I haven't spoken to my sister in 15 years. I couldn't imagine it. Where does this person have time in her life to shut her sister out? It would be so easy to say, we're old now, let's make friends. Just like we did when we were kids. All you had to do was bring a piece of candy and you'd be friends again. There's nothing so precious as kindness a kind word, and a kind word to an unkind repertoire of the mind is very, very important. The real kindness and the real generosity is the greatest gift of all. And what is that? It's paying true attention to our experience in this moment, exactly as it is. That is the greatest gift. It's the greatest kindness, the greatest generosity that we can offer ourselves and others. If someone is listening and they're shouting or they're being unpleasant or they're wrong, they're just making up stories because they don't like us for some reason. 
And believe me, if you, any of you that run a project or are a mom or a dad or a daughter or a son, well, that's all of us. Then these things happen. We know what that feels like. We know what it feels like to be dumped on or to dump. And dumping is not skillful. Unskillfulness is unkind. And unkindness is harmful. This is a path of peace. It's a path of purification. So what we're trying to do is prevent ourselves from causing harm in any shape or form by body, action, speech, talking, or mind, mental conduct. And mental conduct involves speech even if we're the only ones that hear it. So if we're offering ourselves unkind speech, then by giving right attention to that arising in the mind, and being the internal witness, then we can know, is it true or not? If it's not true, why do we believe it? Because we are still deluded. But if we can be undeluded for this one moment of generosity, which is right attention, right hearing, this opinion rising in the mind, hearing it, knowing it to be false, and letting it go, just like the waters that run out of Chapinville Pond. Do we sit there and catch every dribble of water coming out? No. How do we find the joy of the stream of water falling out of the pond, down the creek? How do we enjoy it? We just observe it. We watch it. We listen to it. We know it for what it is. We don't try to hold on to any of it. We know water as the water element. We know the earth as the earth element. We know the heat and cold as the fire element. We know the wind and the air as the air element. We know space as the space element. We know the mind as the mind element. We know mental process as mental process. This is true knowing. This is kindness. It's harmless. It's pure. This is how we overcome delusion. We strip the experience of any packaging. And then we know it intuitively. And what we gain from that is a wisdom beyond the knowing of things in a worldly way as pleasant or unpleasant, as sad or happy, as likable or unlikable, as good or bad. This is the middle way, is a balanced way. We're able to sit in the middle of experience and know it exactly as it is without trying to change it so that it will be pleasing or unpleasing. Change it from unpleasing to pleasing. Or in some cases, when there's malice involved, change it from pleasing to unpleasing. These are the habits that we have to work with. This way of practice that the Buddha teaches us, and the Buddha is still teaching us, 
even though he lived 2,600 years ago, where is the Buddha alive? The Buddha is alive here within us. So when we see the truth of the present moment exactly as it is, then we know truth. Then we know the Buddha. We know the Dhamma, the truth. And knowing the Dhamma is knowing the Buddha. Knowing the Buddha is knowing our own potential to awaken. Our potential for awakening does not lie outside of ourselves. During the time of the Buddha, there was a monk that wandered about looking for a teacher. And he came to a teacher and sat with that teacher and listened to that teacher for a long time. And for a while was quite satisfied with what he heard. But then his mental defilements, his delusion overcame him. He got bored. He didn't really fathom the teaching. He didn't really embody it. He didn't really bring forth within him this Sakibhuta, this internal witness. So eventually he got tired of his teaching and went searching for someone else. He was told by and by that there's this other teacher that he should go and see. So he took that advice and went to the next teacher. And he did the exact same thing. Finally, somebody told him that he should go and see the Buddha. So he went to see the Buddha. And the Buddha told him, there's no use going here and there listening to teachings and expecting to find the truth outside of yourself. Then he gave him a practice and sent him off to do his practice and to find the truth within himself. Just like when we want to blame the world for our suffering, where do we put blame on our suffering? Outside of ourselves. We can blame other people. We can blame our bodies, our education, our parents, our minds, conditions, the world, politicians, our gender, our age, our health, even our life. We're dying and we're still blaming. The mind that blames has not understood the project because conditions are still the source of the problem. The real problem is always within us. The source of the suffering is here, within. Whatever we might be afraid of, fear itself rises within our own citta, our own consciousness. And if we're aware of it, the moment we can be aware of fear and know it as delusion, as contraction of mind, as conditioned phenomena, as anicca, it's impermanent, as unsatisfactory, it is dukkha, suffering. And it is not what we are. It's a moment that arises, we feel it in the body in this way. Feel it, know it, and let it go. We can really only let things go 
when we have this kind of authentic knowledge of what they truly are. Until we can know fear for what it truly is, we can't properly let it go. We can let things go properly when we know them authentically. This is one of the stories that Ajahn tells. Somebody once asked a Zen master, what was the, the Buddha doing under the Bodhi tree? And the Zen master said, the Buddha was doing Zazen. So then this person went and asked Gwenkaji, what was the Buddha doing under the Bodhi tree? And Gwenkaji said, he was doing Vipassana. Ajahn Chah says, it doesn't matter what you call it. What the Buddha was doing under the Bodhi tree was waking up. Whatever we know to be the method for waking up, then we're going to ascribe that to what the Buddha was doing under the Bodhi tree. There are all manner of beings that do things under the Bodhi tree. There are birds that chirp under the Bodhi tree. There are squirrels that chew little nibblings under the Bodhi tree. But what the Buddha was doing under the Bodhi tree was practicing this sakibuto, this internal witnessing, which led to the awakening and the release from samsara. Whatever system you want to call it, when somebody knows a particular method, then they will describe their method. And we can try that method. But if we have a method that we're trying and that method works for us, then let us wake up in that way and not judge others and not be worried about methods. Because then we get into arguments and disputes. And there's nothing so vitriolic as religious warfare all about what the Buddha was doing under the Bodhi. Some teachers forbid their students from practicing with other students, lest they be contaminated by them. This is another, this is a kind of religious delusion. So even in spiritual circles, we have to be careful not to get attached to our opinions about techniques but to always go to the barest essentials of knowing the truth. And that's an internal process. We can package a teaching so beautifully, but it may not work. The best thing we can do is be the Buddha. If we can know the Buddha by knowing the present moment, unpackaged, undisguised, in its true, rare form, exactly as it is, like pure water flowing down the stream. Then we can be awake in that moment. And that's a moment of sakibuto, being this internal witness. And we need to sustain that. That's not freedom yet, but that's a step. 
And how do we sustain that? By practicing. That's what we're doing here. And how do we practice? Repetition. Over and over. Because if we repeat something over and over again, then we learn how to do it. We practice fearlessness. We practice harmlessness. We practice selflessness until we know that there is nothing to fear except delusion. And fear is delusion. There is nothing for us to truly fear. If we are awake to that truth, then we can be sitting under the Bodhi tree in the truest way, in the awakening way, the way of this lineage of the Buddha. The Buddha was not a Buddhist. He was wise. He had an exalted wisdom beyond every realm, beyond realms, transcendent. This is a wisdom that we too can realize. So don't look for the teacher outside of yourself. Just bring the teaching forth inside of yourself, moment by moment.